This podcast is made possible by Workday and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Ian Charles, CFO of Host Analytics, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 464. that was critical was the time to value from the close of the deal to actually implementation. How long does that take? Where are our customers in the cycle? Trying to then correlate, you know, customers that have um, high customer satisfaction scores to their uh, time to value metrics uh, and really try to understand that relationship. Uh, and then what we found, which doesn't, you know, seem to be rocket science, is those who get quicker, uh, quicker value out of the opportunity tend to be the most satisfied customers and really trying to, you know, copy and paste some of our best practices across our customers uh, so that we're, you know, really able to improve our own operational elements to those customers. From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. I'm Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Gordy Brooks, CFO of Financial Force. Gordy entered the strategic finance realm with Web TV back in the late 1990s. He would then leave Silicon Valley to become an international controller with BEA Systems. Back in the U.S., he's had several finance leader tours of duty. We retrace his steps and explore his priorities as a finance leader today at Financial Force after these words from our sponsor. In a world that's always changing, one thing never does. Your need to adapt. Your need to evolve. Your need to grow. That's why we built Workday, a single finance, HR, and planning system that can change as your needs change and evolve as the world evolves. To learn how Workday is helping mid-sized organizations embrace the future with confidence, Visit us at Workday.com. Hello, we're speaking with Gordy Brooks, CFO of Financial Force, a cloud ERP developer with deep roots in finance and for the professional services realm. Gordy, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. Great to have you, Gordy. As you might know, uh, we begin by always asking our finance leaders to look backwards for us and identify those experiences they feel prepared them for a CFO role. What comes to mind for you? Yeah, a couple of interesting uh, milestones in my career. I started out on the audit path through uh, public accounting. But probably the first seminal experience for me was moving into the finance arena in my first industry job at a company called Web TV, which is a high-profile startup here in the uh, in Silicon Valley in the late 90s. 
And I think what was key about that was, you know, public accounting, one services, one's clients, you know, from the audit standpoint, that's from an assurance uh, standpoint. Uh, and this was my first experience of actually being in a company, part of the company, and uh, basically managing, you know, the financial aspects uh, away from the accounting and compliance underpinnings, but really developing the company's model, uh, understanding the drivers, how they impacted planning and budgeting, uh, and really going through that that day-to-day uh, experience and interaction in the, in the guts of the company. So I think that really helped to, you know, formulate my uh, perspective on being within a company, how do you drive those things forward, how does the company you know, go ahead and look at itself, plan around that, and how do you interact with the rest of the team uh, to move things forward. I think probably on another end, uh, you know, I've spent a good bit of my career, eight years in total, at a company here and also in Silicon Valley uh, called BEA Systems that was a software company uh, purchased by Oracle in 2008. Uh, and I was actually our international, <laughs> excuse me, international controller uh, in, uh, in EMEA uh, and running all of the accounting and finance for our international business of, you know, probably about $450 million, uh, revenue in total. Uh, I think it was extremely important uh, being from Silicon Valley to step into an international role and realize you know, what elements are required outside of the U.S., how to be sensitive to statutory requirements that I think we kind of discount here in the U.S. as far as being important, uh, look at things through the various uh, uh, constituencies, especially the different countries, how they do business, uh, how you brand, build a bridge between the corporate operations into the international operations. So, again, for me, that was one of my favorite experiences, not only being international, but really being able to, uh, to learn about the various aspects and uh, step out of the normal role from Silicon Valley uh, and have that varied experience. Uh, lastly, I think probably, uh, you know, critical juncture was my first public company CFO role. Uh, I stepped into a role in 2009 at a company called Blue Coat Systems that was already a public company. Uh, and, again, that was my, my first public company CFO role. You know, there's a difference between being a staff person or a management person working for the CFO and actually being the CFO. So I think it was great to step into that role, be the person in charge of all the elements of finance, accounting, IT, operations, uh, you know, working directly with the CEO, driving the process, being the spokesperson to the street, uh, to the sell side analysts, to the investors, um, participating in investor roadshows. And, you know, there's nothing like being in the leadership role, having to, you know, put your agenda together, you know, be the uh, person on the front line and, uh, and show that leadership to, uh, to your team as well. Uh, so that really kind of helped me to... Uh, uh, manifest my philosophies in the role into, uh, you know, owning that role uh, and uh, uh, being able to uh, uh, participate through that role with the rest of executive management and try to try to drive behavior and the culture of the company. Great, great examples. I want to uh, ask you about BEA Systems where you really, you made an investment of time there. And I'm wondering if you can help us understand how that company grew during uh, your tenure there? 
Yeah, absolutely. I arrived uh, in, in early 2000, so right before, you know, the dot-bomb explosion. Uh, but DEA had just completed its fiscal year, and we were about a $400 million in total revenue overall. Uh, and the company had just acquired a company called uh, um, WebLogic uh, that was a Java middleware company that really exploded in its growth as it uh, became a part of DEA. Uh, when Oracle bought us in 2008, I believe our revenue was about 1.25 billion, so a you know 3x, uh, 4x type of growth over those uh, eight years, uh, and really you know significant change to the underpinnings of the company, uh, you know as we went ahead and uh, you know built the in- infrastructure to accommodate that growth. Uh, and to, uh, you know, to continue that growth going you, forward. You, uh, you, you mentioned the international experience that came, that came with uh, BEA. It was an opportunity that uh, I, you didn't want to pass up, perhaps, at that point in your career. Um, but at the same time, other executives, uh, it might not have been a good fit. Can you tell us a little bit about the decision-making behind taking an inter- international assignment, some of the things that went through your your mind? Yeah, absolutely, and you're right. It wasn't an obvious choice to do. It was a very attractive offer uh, to go have the experience, but uh, my wife and I had young children at the time, and it was also a very disruptive uh, personal uh, choice uh, to go ahead and pursue. But, uh, you know, I had started to take on some of those responsibilities uh uh, from the U.S. and was traveling over to the U.K. quite a bit and realized that to be most effective, it really required me to, you know, be there in person. Uh, and so the uh, it was really that trade-off of that, you know, expanding the career opportunity, uh, being given that, that opportunity and wa- not wanting to let it go by and uh, looking kind of at the long-term investment of what it would allow me to do. Uh, in getting varied experience and, uh, you know, expanding the, uh, the capacity that I had uh, in the area. So we, you know, made a choice as a family to go ahead and, uh, and pursue that and uh, take advantage of it and, uh, and put up with a little bit of the, you know, the difficulties there was in transition to make that occur. But I'd highly recommend that type of uh, experience to, uh, to folks when they have that opportunity uh, because you just get a different perspective, you see things through a different lens, uh, and we're all, you know, many of us are in multinational organizations, I think it's very important to get that perspective from those other countries about how they do business, how they perceive how we in the U.S. do business, uh, and that everything isn't just, uh, you know, U.S. or Silicon Valley-centric. Uh, there is really a global approach to uh, to these businesses. So, there are a number of uh, CFO chapters before you ro- you arrive at Financial Force. Tell us what attracted you to this latest opportunity. You've already been in a CFO role, and what is it? Uh, so you, we would be led to believe you're more discriminating now. You now know what you want to do. What what type of opportunity is appealing, and and what has been there, done that? What what would you tell us? Sure, absolutely. Now, and it's a great question. You know, I've had a variety of experiences in my career. Some worked well, some didn't work well. You know, there was no perfect path along the way. I think the key that I learned was that those varied experiences uh, help contribute into each of the subsequent roles. Uh, you know, there's no copy-paste of an approach into any given organization. 
you know, one has to adapt to the culture, adapt to the business model, bring the experience so you can influence where the company is going, but not just, uh, you know, have the company adapt to you. And so as I look at my opportunities a lot that I pursued along the way, I like to get into an opportunity where I can help shape things going forward, really help the company at its next level of growth, help coalesce the operations, uh, you know, bring my skill set in, but also continue to be challenged. Personally, I don't like to, I get a little bored if I get into circumstances that are just the same that I've seen before. So for me, it's really trying to pursue something that's going to challenge me allow me to new, uh, learn new things along the way, uh, but then I can also bring something into the environment to help the organization get to its next level overall. Uh, so when I look at the current organization, you know, I've never been in a company that's been within the Salesforce ecosystem. Uh, you know, Financial Force is built natively on top of the Salesforce platform. We're an ISV or an independent software vendor of Salesforce. Uh, and uh, I thought, you know, that was one part of my career I'd never had an experience in the Salesforce ecosystem and with Salesforce Excel, except as a CRM user, uh, and that the, uh, you know, this company was at a point where it could really uh, see transformation going forward and expanding its operations, and for me to be part of that ecosystem and see the next step of what is happening with software platforms in, uh, in Silicon Valley. So... When you arrive, uh, I noticed your CEO came in the same year, the, uh, 2017 we're speaking. Okay, so it looks like you were uh, maybe the next addition of a new team that was being put into place. And am I right about that, or how would you characterize that? Yeah, actually, when Todd Nielsen, our CEO, came on board in, in January 2017, he and I had worked together before. Uh, and he had uh, reached out to me about the opportunity. We didn't, the, uh, the new executive members of the team did not all come in at the same time, but I think as Todd came in, evaluated, you know, what he needed to do in his role and who he needed to support him, he started to make executive leadership changes across the organization. Uh, so I, and I think for a CEO walking into a new role, you only have, uh, uh, you know, so many things that you can do across your executive team members about, you know, what changes do I need to make, who have I worked with before, who's new, uh, and I think in this circumstance, you know, Todd knew my capabilities, you know, we had a good working relationship prior uh, at BEA and at VMware, uh, and there was just a good alignment of what he was trying to accomplish, the experience I brought to the table, and the type of interaction, and, and uh you know, executive interactions that we had overall. Uh, and I think that's a, you know, key, especially companies our size of, uh, you know, 650 employees, $100 million of revenue, where, you know, that culture, that executive fit and interaction is, is really critical uh, to make sure to get, uh, get those things right. What about the, the finance team? Was there something, uh, did, you, did you, were there key uh, positions that you wanted to fill, or did you want to structure it a little differently? Any any changes there? Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a great question as well. Yes, I think for you know I've seen a lot of companies in Silicon Valley get to this point again. I call it the hundred million dollar revenue mark, where the world starts to change. You're trying to scale the business. Some of the things you've done before don't work anymore because you can only do so much manually. Uh, so when I came in, I really evaluated 
you know, where the finance and accounting teams were and where I thought we needed to be to be able to take those steps forward. Um, I'm always cautious about, you know, just wanting to bring in, you know, new talent or people that I've worked with before. You know, my first uh, response is to look at the talent on the team. You know, can we continue to utilize that talent and help them grow and develop into the roles that, uh, that we may be lacking? Or where do we actually need to bring in additional talent and experience where uh, we don't have those skill sets overall? Um, one of the things I did was to kind of reorganize the corporate controller world. Uh, we had a corporate controller that uh, was very capable and not quite as experienced and helped that person shape their organization uh, to have really more clear lines of reporting, clear organizational authority. Uh, you know, and again, in startup companies, a lot of times things get built organically and you have a uh, uh, people with ambiguous roles or, you know, too many things, too many hats that they're wearing overall. So getting a little more structure in place. Uh, the one thing I like to do that I grew up with at BEA is uh, have a dedicated sales finance leader, uh, really kind of separating sales finance from the traditional financial planning and analysis or FP&A. Uh, sales finance is a very different beast than financial planning dealing with quotas and deal structure, compensation plans. Uh, and so I did bring in a senior leader over sales finance, you know, to have somebody that was kind of the right-hand person to the chief revenue officer and to sales operations, uh, could be feet on the street on a daily basis, interact proactively with sales uh, as opposed to, you know, react on a reactive basis, which happens way too often, and to uh, – to try to prevent us from being known as the Revenue Prevention Society, which a lot of times sales uh, sales can view finance as and really, again, be more working as a team uh, with the sales organization and the go-to-market organization overall. So that really helped us separate the uh, oversight to the, let's call it the company model that FP&A does from a budgeting and planning standpoint and really having some leadership dedicated towards the, the go-to-market cycle. Now, I'm curious, were you familiar with uh, the financial force uh, platform? And uh, I, I have this idea that uh, if you hadn't used the platform before, you step into this role and, um, you know, a, as a finance leader, uh, your natural curiosity is to understand what greater visibility you're going to enjoy or what is this tool used? I haven't experiment it with this before, what is this going to allow me to see that I, I haven't in the past been able to get my hands on? Uh, I mean, is that, was that sort of the experience, or how, what would you share with us? Yeah, well, I think there was an intriguing aspect to the actual offering that we have. I was not familiar with the, uh, with the product and the offering beforehand. Uh, and like I said, what was intriguing about it is in all the years of being a CFO, it's always been a product set for the company that's really, you know, outside my area of expertise, whether it's been middleware, security software, network, uh, um, Wi-Fi, networking Wi-Fi software. Uh, so in this circumstance, actually being built on a financial platform, you know, it could actually use my expertise, have input into the product roadmap. We run on our own products, so we give, you know, daily input, though the head of product development doesn't really like that, but we give daily input back into the development team 
and have a you know good interactive cycle as almost one of the test users overall. Um, so actually, there's been an added value there of really being able to uh, you know not only eat our own dog food, but be able to have that influence. Of, you know, I've used all these systems over my career. You know, most of us know how they operate, what their benefits are, what their drawbacks are, and be able to influence the roadmap um, to the way I think that. You know, people would like to use these systems and tools has really been an, an added aspect to the role. Earlier, you mentioned uh, the emphasis on sales finance. I'm wondering if uh, the platform uh, likewise has uh, helped you emphasize sales finance in some way, whether it's through dashboards that make certain things visible or shared numbers or initiatives that are, you know, you're able to tailor with the with the functionality in some way. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think what's fascinating, you know, Salesforce is a CRM. Uh, you know, everything is built on on the account object in Salesforce. You know, we build our software on top of the, uh, the, uh, the Salesforce platform, so we're pulling from the account and opportunity objects out of Salesforce. So it's a very different way to think about the financials. You know, I can tie together... You know, my financial systems, whether it's revenue management, invoicing, the actual GL, accounts receivable, into those original Salesforce objects and accounts that have been created when the opportunity was originally created. So there's this very interesting seamless process between these data objects uh, that is, you know, unique to how financial systems have traditionally been run. Uh, I think if you harken back 10 years, 15 years ago, we all talked about the 360-degree view of the customer, you know, how there were big IT projects to pull together data marts of all the uh, information about our customers from the various systems that were just enormous endeavors that spent a lot of time just trying to get one single view of the customer throughout the organization. Well, you, you know, move fast forward 10 to 15 years later, we had that coming right out of Salesforce, running through our financial systems, you know, we can double-click within AR to see, you know, what deals that that customer has done, you know, when their original opportunity, what their profile is, and go in and out of the various aspects of the system and get that visibility. So I think that's a huge, you know, leap forward from a financial system standpoint and then making that data available, you know, to the consumers, you know, type of dashboards and the reporting that we can do and the real-time metrics around that information. Uh, and I think added value for a company our size is that it's, you know, it, again, at the $100 million mark, it's all about the go-to-market process and being able to scale that part of your business. So you're trying to evaluate, you know, metrics and the combination of metrics constantly to find out what's working, what's challenging, you know, where do we double down on investments and having that visibility, uh, you know, at a, at a quick pace, maybe not always a real-time pace, but a much quicker cadence uh, really uh, accentuates the decision-making process. So, yeah, I, we, we always uh, ask uh, our guests to share with us uh, the metrics that are important. I think you've already given us a few clues as to what yours might be, renewable revenues or uh, lifetime customer value or but um, I'm, I'm looking for a metric that we might be surprised to learn, uh, just so we don't hear uh, the same uh, three or four metrics over again. <laughs> but what would you – and, and you've already, you, you, were, you were touching on something there with the customer 
and, and of course, this unique sort of, uh, you use the word seamless. We always hear these things are seamless, but I have to believe the Salesforce relationship uh, is, is tighter than, than in a lot of uh, other technology companies. Um, so you're probably closer to seamless. Right. But, what, you know, again, with that sort of fresh perspective that you have having worked other places, what are the metrics that are important to you here? You know, is there a metric that you're using perhaps that uh, uh, you hadn't relied on in the past uh, for whatever reason? Yeah, great question. And, and expanding upon that, you know, your metrics really measure those key drivers of your business. Um, and certainly there are tailored metrics that we all use now in the, you know, SaaS or subscription business that are still germane. Uh, but I think what's also interesting is trying to find the other metrics that are unique to one's own business uh, that may not be ones that others have used or that you've encountered before. I think for us in our business model, since we are an ERP software, even though we're, you know, a subscription model and a cloud business, you know, our software still needs to be, quote, unquote, implemented. Uh, so there is a deployment period that we use. We do have consultants in-house. We do use work with partners to help our customers get deployed. Uh, and one of the things over the last, you know, as long as I've been here, we started to measure that was critical was the, you know, it's really the time to value. Uh, you know, different in a subscription model than the old perpetual software model, how quickly you get value out of your subscription is, is so critical um, to a customer. In the old model, I was buying an asset. If it took me, you know, a year to get implemented, that was fine. I own the asset. You know, I could do what I wanted with, and all I did was pay for a support stream. But in a subscription model, I'm on the, I think of it as I'm on the clock immediately, uh, I want value as a customer immediately because I'm, you know, I've only got so much time on the clock. And how do we, as the providers to the customers, get them up to, you know, their value quickly? So we've started to measure, you know, from the close of a deal to actually implementation. How long does that take? Where are customers in the cycle? Trying to then correlate, you know, customers that have um, high customer satisfaction scores to their uh, time-to-value metrics uh, and really try to understand that relationship. Uh, and that what we found, which doesn't you know, seem to be rocket science, is those who get quicker, uh, quicker value out of the opportunity tend to be the most satisfied customers and really trying to you know, copy and paste some of our best practices across our customers uh, so that we're you know, really able to improve our own operational elements to those customers. So I think that, you know, and that was an example of really understanding our unique business model and how it impacted our customers and then reverse engineering, you know, what are some of the key metrics that can help identify where we are, you know, along those, uh, those trends. Uh, I think maybe to expand on, you know, this is a subscription business. Uh, the SaaS model is not new, but some of the KPIs that are critical for all of us as we all look at our Pipeline metrics, you know, the funnel of creating the pipeline, the conversion ratios of the pipeline. Um, you have, uh, you know, obviously your annual recurring revenue, your kind of exit annual recurring revenue. You know, what have I built up to? Uh, for us, we look at, you know, kind of in the land and expand model, uh, you know, how much is net new business or new logos? 
how much is an expansion or add-on business into the installed base. Uh, you know, that's critical in a uh, in any company to determine what your you know how much are you uh, you focused on you know grabbing incremental capacity out with customers uh, as opposed to actually landing brand new customers. Uh, and that then turns into what you talked about here. Your CAC ratio, your cost of acquiring the customers, more expensive to acquire new customers than it is to expand into your current install base of customers. So you have to have a very delicate balance there because economically, you know, you're trying to get as big of an, of an install base as possible to continue to expand in because every dollar of expansion is actually more profitable than the dollar prior. Uh, so keeping that balance between the land and the expand is is critical. You don't want to overtip and just cultivate your installed base because then you will, you know, your growth prospects will come to an end. But if all the focus is only on, you know, net new, then you're missing the opportunity to expand profitably within your installed base. So keeping that uh, that in balance is, is extremely important, which is why those metrics are, uh, you know, used by everybody and monitored on a, uh, you know, on a recurring basis. I think maybe the last one to add there is, is, you know, it's all about customers and therefore it's also about renewal rates and churn rates. Uh, you know, the customers you have that come up for renewal, how many decide to stay with you or renew. We also look at total churn rates is that, you know, sometimes customers are not able to get live on your offering and may actually churn before they get up for renewal. So we like to look at the entire uh, install base, whether they're up for renewal or not, and who's active um, and who's uh, continuing on as a customer from a number of customers standpoint as well as a dollar value of customers. Uh, and, and double click on those profiles because the type of customers that are churning and their profile might give you insight into what you're doing well or what you're not doing well in certain segments or with certain offerings. So trying to not just have the high-level metrics, but double-click on the different combinations underneath to understand those behaviors. We'll be back after this message. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. So I'm going to ask you, uh, towards the, the end of the interview, I get to ask you what are your priorities looking forward um, over the next 12 months. But right now, I want to um, I want to uh, once more have you look back for us. And we always ask for a finance strategic moment. And I know these come every uh, 24 hours in the... Uh, into the technology realm these days. But what would you share with us? If I asked for a finance strategic moment, and again, this is when your lines in, in, uh, of sight into the organization, whether it was here at Financial Force or earlier, uh, that led you 
to redirect the organization in some way, perhaps, or identify a risk or an opportunity? What comes to mind when I ask for a finance strategic moment? Yeah, and I, I would, you know, if you're thinking about this, there is one example I think is a bit humorous as well as has a great backstory on it because it also shows the relationship and business partnering that the CEO uh, um, looks for out of his or her CFO. Uh, but when I was at Blue Coat Systems, uh, when the first week that I started, the CEO uh, was really gung-ho on moving the organization to paying sales commissions on a weekly basis. Uh, and for anybody that's been in, you know, sales comp or been a CFO or corporate controller, you can imagine my response was just utter horror that I thought was probably the most ridiculous thing anybody had ever asked me in my life. Like, why would you pay sales commissions on a weekly basis? Um, and, but Brian was just, he, he was hell-bent on, uh, on having this happen, putting that process in place, having a repeatable process. Uh, and I thought, you know, as a new CFO, it would be easy for me to convince the CFO that that wasn't a great idea, and I knew all the reasons why. And, but Brian was not to be, uh, uh, you know, pushed off of his, uh, his idea that this needed to be done. So I really had to kind of change my strategy and I'm trying to get into his head about what was it that made this such an important endeavor and how could I solve the problem differently. Um, and what I learned in the process is I kind of double-clicked and, and really um, trying to iterate more with, with him on the, the notion was that Brian's issue was really he didn't want to necessarily pay sales commissions weekly. That was the outcome of the problem that he was trying to solve. Uh, what he really wanted to do is have really the whole process of territory assignments and sales comp plans and everything much more seamlessly performed such that we could, if we ever wanted to, pay sales commissions weekly. Uh, but he didn't really know how to ask the upstream process to be, uh, you know, uh, corrected and streamlined and create a much more efficient process out of it. Uh, so his way of doing that was to tell everybody what the outcome was that he wanted and edict that. Uh, and so it took me a couple of weeks to actually try to tease apart and then convince him, of, okay, I understand the problem you're trying to solve. Here's how I think we should solve that problem as opposed to edicting a particular outcome. Uh, and actually it worked successfully, and then we used that as the opportunity to kind of recraft the operational system behind what we were trying to do. Uh, and, you know, worked with the finance, the sales ops team, got down to the core, you know, the root problem of what was creating issues uh, and put together a, uh, you know, not only a systemic solution but a business process solution to the issues that were being uncovered. But I think for me, again, in the CFO role, it's not just about metrics and the business model and all. There's also the human touch. If you have a relationship with the executive team and with the CEO for whom you're providing, you know, business support, uh, and you can't always assume that they will see eye to eye with your perspective. So, you know, many times you need to step into their uh, 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 shoes, see it through their lens, and try to understand how to bridge your perspective with theirs and go try to solve those problems. Uh, and I think I, I learned a lot from that. Actually, my CEO learned a lot from that. Uh, and it really helped us to have a much more effective relationship going forward because we could 
then see what the other was trying to accomplish and how they looked at the world. Yeah, interesting. Um, because there's a broader conversation, I think, going on in finance now about compensation and, and visibility into um, hiring and salaries and what have you. I, I know that Financial Force also has a human capital uh, component to it. I'm wondering uh, that given the platform, do you sense that you're experiencing some greater enlightenment related to uh, human capital challenges or priorities? Yeah, and I think where that is so, um, what do I want to say, steadfastly manifest for all of us is really in the go-to-market compensation, um, you know, because sales compensation, quotas, achievement is as much art as science. Uh, I think historically we've all treated it as art, uh, and, you know, over the last 10 to 15 years it's become a combination and more science. But I think we're all, you know, we all look at establishing the right metrics, understanding, you know, what our, uh, our metrics are as compared to benchmarks, challenging the benchmarks, you know, depending on what one's business model is uh, and all. And so I think a lot of time and effort for all of us has been, you know, to speak for my colleagues, been spent on trying to understand those components because they're more variable components to how the business is being run. Any type of variable compensation, you know, tends to be driven by the operations of the business and how do you best, you know, create a relationship between what you're trying to reward and the operational outcome that it is incenting. Uh, I don't think that's anything new, but I think the type of information and real-time information that we're able to gather uh, and to analyze more automated as opposed to manually, you know, gives us more insight and, you know, pushes all of us to uh, create different structures and uh, different ways of looking at these types of programs. Uh, I think on the flip side, you know, there's been so much over the last, you know, 10, 15, 20 years about, uh, you know, cost per head, lower cost locations, where your resources are, are located. I think we've gone from simply a you know, how do we measure resources based on dollars and really trying to understand more about output and other combinations. Uh, I think it's probably more nascent in, in the analytics, but I think we all realize that it's not just a dollar per head um, that, that defines value and defines your business model. It's, you know, access to capital in different locations, uh, certainly the cost of that capital, the type of, you know, turnover and capability of your capital. So I think, you know, with finance teams working with their HR or employee success teams that we're all trying to move those metrics forward and find, you know, different ways in which to uh, look at the combination of information to get a better understanding of what's being successful and what's not being. Okay. Uh, we're going to uh, move to our mentoring round. I've been throwing a few extra questions your way, uh, Gordy, so thank you. Uh, but I wanted to uh, – Move into our mentoring round where I get to ask you several quick questions intended to uh, sort of inspire and mentor future finance leaders. We want to know what's exciting you now about finance and business. What is it? You've lived all these different lives. You've built a number of different companies, helped to build a number of different companies. What is it that's exciting you now about finance and business today? Yeah, maybe two things. Overall. One overall that hasn't changed is that you know, the world is in constant change. I think what's attracted me of uh, being in Silicon Valley, 
being in finance because you're in the center of it all is just that the world changes rapidly uh, and one has to constantly, you know, try to catch up with it. And the, the moment you feel comfortable, everything changes again. So I love that type of environment, love being challenged. I love, uh, uh, you know, not necessarily knowing the answer and there may not be an answer. Uh, and so I think that, that backdrop is what's exciting, you know, within the Valley. Uh, I think specifically uh, today what has changed and what's exciting is access to information and being able to, uh, you know, see patterns in information and get more knowledgeable about your business operations, your interaction with customers based on data. Uh, certainly we've all talked about we all use data. Uh, we've all traditionally used data, but the uh, availability of information, uh, the real-time uh, access to that information, the robustness of the information that's available, and then, you know, with AI, the ability for, you know, to use that to make real-time modifications and changes sometimes without having to touch anything, I think is, is exciting. It has its darker side as well, but I think from a finance standpoint, you know, being able to have access to information and not spending all of our time accumulating and aggregating information, but being able to have that done so that we can spend more time understanding, analyzing, trying to pick out trends, uh, and, uh, and, and have a cadence of the delivery of that information, really kind of changes the game for all of us to focus on the substance as opposed to, again, the form of, of aggregating the information. Now, I think earlier you mentioned uh, at Blue Coat Systems how you were the the CFO, the finance leader, and perhaps, you know, the full weight of the, the role uh, you experienced there for the first time. What we'd like to ask is when you stepped into that role, what is the piece of advice you wish someone had given you? The first time you, you had that, you stepped into the CFO office and it was yours. What is that, that one piece of advice you wish someone had given you? Yeah, to recognize the fact that you can you can reach out and ask, not necessarily ask for help, but you don't have to have all the answers. You know, you have an executive team, you have a relationship with your CEO, you have board members who generally have, you know, quite a bit of experience. Uh, you don't have, you know, when you step into that role, no one's expecting you to know everything, to have all the answers, um, to have everything perfectly lined out. But it's okay to be, be humble and recognize that you don't um, and be able to have that dialogue and that interaction. Uh, at Blue Code, I had two wonderful mentors on the audit committee, both former public company CFOs, um, and they were, uh, you know, more than uh, uh, engaging about offering that dialogue, actually proactively engaging me to make sure that I realized that there was that, uh, you know, ability to have that interaction and not think that I, you know, I had to go ahead and, and solve the world's problems all by myself. Uh, I think that's really important, especially the first time you step into that type of a role where you believe that the responsibility has been put on you to sort out all of these things and to be that, uh, you know, the overall fiduciary leader of the company, that there is a support network um, and, to, and to utilize, to cultivate it uh, and to be able to utilize it as well. Now, you know, it's interesting. I recall the uh, BA 
BEA systems deal going down. It was a mega deal. It was a big, big dollar sign, as you illustrated earlier. I forget the history there. Was it before the deal had it gone public? Was it was it already public for years? Or uh, I forget. I forget what the story was. Yeah, BEA was a public company. Uh, it had gone public in the late 90s, probably 1997 or 98. Um, again, really had its explosion of growth starting in 2000, 2001. Um, so it was a public company when, when Oracle purchased it. I think a, a you know, um, sea change of the software industry in the mid-2000s really started with PeopleSoft acquisition by Oracle. And Oracle figured out something in the business model that I think we figured out about the same time at DEA, which was for the old perpetual software business model, the support stream was the most important economic aspect of that model. We all focused on, you know, by hook or by crook, we have to get new licensed business, and it was always about how much new revenue, new licensed business you were landing and it took everybody a few years to realize, yes, that's important to expand the install base, but it's the annuity stream of the support um, uh, business that is the core economics of the underlying uh, you know, software business, which I think ultimately led to the subscription business um, because that, that just became the key part of the model. Um, so I think Oracle, you know, when they acquired PeopleSoft, that was certainly the key underpinning. Uh, and I think if you looked at the economics of BEA in 2007 when, uh, you know, we started to be courted by Oracle, you could see the same type of thing in our business models. We just had an extraordinary cash-rich business model that had uh, unfolded given the installed base and that, uh, that annuity stream, you know, of a high renewal rate support stream that, uh, that really changed the landscape of our business and of the software industry at the time. Okay, well, uh, you know, thank you for sharing that. I, I knew there were uh, that that deal and uh, that company is credited uh, with having achieved certain uh, milestones in the industry. Is there a personal habit or a routine that you have that you you believe has contributed to your professional success in some way? Yeah, it, it's interesting. A little different than maybe most CFOs, particularly in the Valley, might. Background is in music. Uh, I was a classical pianist uh, in training in college, so I didn't get an accounting degree uh, until I got my master's in accounting several years later. But I think the habits as a musician were critical to my own development, uh, and those again the the ability to you, know, you learn this as an auditor as well, but really the ability to question things, to dive deep to look for patterns, um, but I think personally from a behavioral standpoint, also the ability to, to step back and, and take the time and have that time to, to reflect, to organize oneself, almost like uh, the same way I would address a piece of music I try to address each day, uh, you know, being organized, having a structure, uh, and being able to start the day with kind of that clean slate with clear goals and objectives of what I'm trying to accomplish. So I think putting that discipline in place and a framework, not too rigid, but enough of a framework to drive an outcome so that the, you know, the busyness of the day or the busy work that we all do doesn't overwhelm us in the moment, but that we have some overall, 
you know, perspective and framework that we're trying to attend to and get an outcome of. Uh, again, whether it's on a daily basis, a weekly basis, or, you know, in fiscal years as we all try to uh, uh, plan from a finance standpoint, I think having that, that framework and that, uh, uh, that, capability, that scaffolding to what you're trying to accomplish is extremely important. Okay. Well, we are up to our final question where I get to ask you to look uh, into the future 12 months and, and tell us a little bit about what your priorities are in the coming 12 months. Yeah, we continue to evolve our business model, and my priorities are to, you know, starts with the, the customer. You know, what can we do to provide a, you know, ever better experience to our customers? You know, from a finance standpoint, that usually starts with the underlying systems and the ease of doing business with us. I also think of my internal customers, uh, you know, the executive staff and the other functions of, you know, what, what problems are we trying to solve? How can we help? Uh, what are the frameworks to move forward? Uh, and, and also for the company itself then to, you know, continue to eliminate, you know, we also have manual processes, continue to adopt, you know, the new capabilities, eliminate, you know, the old impediments and uh, keep the cycle moving forward. You know, so we can spend most of our time, if not all of our time, focused on the key tenants of the business. So I think, you know, those are always aspirational, but, uh, you know, adopting the new approaches to allow us to you know, continue to improve our processes is, uh, I think, from a finance and accounting standpoint, that that has to be on the top of the list for, for everyone in the, uh, in the role that they perform. Gordy Brooks, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Fantastic. I appreciate the, uh, the time today. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts. Or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter, featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.